I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres and give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and then, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. We are joined today by Mark Salter, the co-author with Senator John McCain of their latest book, The Restless Wave. Good Times, Just Causes, Great Fights, and Other Appreciations. Mark was McCain's chief of staff and active on McCain's presidential campaign and is often described as Senator McCain's advisor, confidant, and alter ego. Of course, the Wall Street Journal described Mark as the campaign's chief creator, shaper, and enforcer. In their new book, we are given a front seat, intimate perspective on the most critical issues of our time, our role in global ideals, domestic, political achievements and failures, foreign policy, history, and most particularly the story of a man, restless, idealistic, heroic, patriotic, and fiercely committed to our country and its citizens. Mark, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks for having me, Roxanne. Uh, So just so that everybody can imagine uh, the setting, as opposed to being in a small studio in New Haven, Mark and I are together and sitting in Castine, Maine, overlooking the Penobscot Bay. So imbue our conversation uh, with that sensibility. The podcast business must be thriving. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So Mark... Uh, The first chapter in the book is titled Accumulated Memories and is a beautiful and poignant chapter. In this chapter, as Senator McCain recounts watching 2,000 Pearl Harbor survivors march during a ceremony commemorating the 50th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, he becomes overwhelmed and a little embarrassed by the emotion. His dear friend, uh, and colleague Dan Inouye, the senior senator from Hawaii, responds quietly, accumulated memories. Some of these accumulated memories have been covered in your other best-selling books, like most obviously Faith of Our Fathers. How did you and the senator decide on which of those accumulated memories to highlight in the book, and, and what guided those choices? Well, the book changed, as you and I have talked before. He was, uh, we had signed a contract in the winter of uh, 2017 to write the book, and it was going to be mostly a foreign policy book. There's still quite a bit of foreign policy mm. and foreign travel in the book, but it was going to be mostly, uh, mostly, you know, uh, it would have been more focused on that. Uh, and he was diagnosed with uh, terminal brain cancer in uh, July of 2017, and he wanted to write a different book and 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 have chapters that were more personal to him and what the country meant to him, what he thinks the country means to the world and what he hopes it'll mean to the world after he's gone. Um, and inclu- including the, the, the chapter with the, the Dan and Noe anecdote. Um, mm-hmm. that, in our first conversation after he said, let's change the title, the, the original title was going to be It's Always Dark as Before, It's Completely Black. <laughs> he's got a very sort of ironic and dark sensibility and, sense and that of humor. melds with your sensibility and, and they are perfectly compatible <laughs> with my own and uh right. um uh he said that's too flip mm. you know I, I want i want this you know he he wanted to get across two things how fortunate he he considers himself for having been able to serve 
the country for 60 mm. years and the life it's allowed him, this big adventurous life it's allowed him to live. And to, as I said, to, to write about what the country means to him and what the country means to the world. And so he, the very first thing he did then was start to tell me about this 50th anniversary. Because you hadn't been Pearl there. Harbor. I had not been there. I remember him going to it. He and Cindy, his wife Cindy, going to it. But, uh, and I remember him telling me. You know, that he had mm. gotten choked up watching this guy's years ago, I remember. Him. That wasn't merely in the recollection. No. And uh, he's like, just, I don't know what came over me. And and, and, and he's Dan Inouye, who uh, listeners should know, was a very decorated hero from World War II, mm. um, the Medal of Honor recipient. Um, and he was there with Bob Dole, another decorated and wounded veteran of World War right. II. So the three of them. Yeah. And... Uh, um, and it, he said it, that it just hit me. I had reached an age where these, you know, the weight of my memories was starting to get to me, mm. you know, that, you know, wow, this life I've lived and yeah. the people I've got to meet and the things I've got to do. You know. And that was almost 30 years ago. That was almost 30 years ago. I mean, ago, he must right? have been yeah. in his 50s then, right? Yeah, he was in his 50s, right. So the other thing that you can't help but think about, you've got a chapter titled In the Company of Heroes. And as you read these chapters on uh, the senator's commitment to U.S. ideals and the heroes of our armed forces, you're compelled to contemplate our role today. How would you and the senator define our role and what our responsibility is and what is and isn't overreach? And probably most importantly, what's what's our imperative? Well, um, any nation— should behave uh, the order of priorities for its activities overseas. Uh, the defense of its own country is to protect our own security and our mm-hmm. prosperity and our way of life. So obviously that always comes first. But much of our leadership overseas is that we recognized after World War II that absent our leadership, bad things happened. You know, the, the world <laughs> erupted into two world wars, um, and uh, American leaders, leaders of that era made a determination that we were going to remain engaged in the world after the end of World War II, help rebuild it, and help organize it, uh, uh, this liberal international order that has resulted in, even though we've been involved in wars, Comparatively, a time of great peace and prosperity where more people on the face of the earth enjoy freedom and uh, less poverty, much less poverty. And relatedly, the United States has become the most powerful, wealthiest nation on earth. It's, mm. it's worth, To the good of its citizens. To the good of its citizens. Uh, and we've always operated in the world. We don't fight for tribes. We don't fight for geography even. Mm. Um, we don't fight to steal resources, other countries' resources, or to take their land. We're not an imperialistic power. We fight to protect an order, or we stay engaged in the world and spend money, and we we manage to win a Cold War with a nuclear-armed adversary who had as much military might as we did at one point, without ever coming to blows or having a nuclear yeah. exchange, because we were prepared to fight for Luxembourg if we had to. When 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 Donald Montenegro, Tr- when Donald Trump can't can't figure out a good reason for why we would fight for Montenegro, well, because it, it helped us. That kind of willingness helped us defeat the Soviet Union uh, without firing Peacefully. a shot. Without firing a shot. Uh, and that's why we do it, and uh, because we believe in values. We serve ideals overseas. They don't, people don't have to, we don't expect people to adapt or adopt our specific forms of government, bicameral legislatures or th- three branches of government, but to just promote democratic values in the world. It's, it, it redounds to our benefit, of course, but mm. it, to, to the world as well. And, and the way McCain would always formulate, it's been an honor to fight for America and her causes. Mm. Those are her causes to him. Some people will call him a hawk or 
But what matters to him are those values more than anything else. That's that's what he's hoped to serve in the world. And Mark, you know, one thing, sometimes the United States is accused of being imperialistic. So how would you or the senator distinguish protecting those ideals from the notion of Mm -hmm. imperialism? Yeah. I think, you know, around the turn of the last century, uh, we, we had a brief period of sort of half-hearted imperialism, you know, <laughs> I, I think. Um, but that that's long past. We don't yeah. – there sort of the, the free flow of commerce, keeping shipping lanes open, those sorts of materialistic right. imperatives, you know, that ser- serve our economy or our prosperity are important. And any, any nation will, will do that or to make sure that we have access to oil, energy sources we may need or something. But we don't steal it from people. We yeah. don't conquer countries and – this is now ours. Uh, that's not what we do it for. We didn't go to Iraq. I respect all arguments again. You know, that say we you know, going in Iraq you know, was a mistake. I understand those arguments, and agree in part with those arguments. Mm-hmm. But we didn't go to Iraq as as the more uh, bombastic, less rational critics of the decision would say to take their oil. Right. That's not what we did it for. Right. Um, uh, George Bush didn't invade Iraq for oil or for Exxon or for whatever. That we don't do that. You know the thing that thing that you just said that is striking to me, and and neither you nor the senator have been shy about having disagreements um, with the president. But you know when you talk about what George Bush did, one of the things that I think you hear a lot of people say is that we've had presidents before who you might not agree with their approach. But there has been a commitment to a sense of ideals. And would you agree that what feels different about this president is that it feels transactional versus idealistic? Yes, transactional, um, mercantilist. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good word, Mark. and, and, And really, I you know, I apologize to any any supporters of the president, uh, but my my view of the president is he has no personal qualities that are in any way admirable. Mm. So it's no surprise that he shares none of the values of this country. I can't think of a one that he yeah. does share. Uh, doesn't care about promoting them overseas, so he says all sorts of nonsensical things like "I'll do waterboarding and worse." We'll go into Iraq and take their oil. You know, uh, well that is imperialistic. Yeah, ironically, yeah, yeah. I, I think he's. Uh, a very anti-American president. Yeah. How would he, if you were him, mm-hmm. which, you know, in the sort of classic defend the person who agrees mm-hmm. with you, what do you think is shaping his idea that actually he is thinking of America? It, well, I, this isn't going to be much of a defense of him, um, <laughs> but I think I understand what drives him. I think I have a notion anyway of what yeah. drives him. Um, he's insecure and he's resentful. Yeah. And so everybody's always trying to screw him. So, so it's he, a zero so sum game. I'm, I'm going to screw you first. Yeah, is the way yeah. he's approached business. You know, you can. You know, I mean, the East Coast is littered with people that got investors and subcontractors to Donald or Trump employees. who were who employees who were cheated by him. I mean, there are legions of them. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's the way he looks at the world too. Somebody's ripping us off. I mean, the way the way he looks at trade is is. Uh, I mean, it would it would fail. You know, economics one hundred and one. You know, it's just like. Trade having, barriers. A tra- having a trade deficit with a country means you know, somehow we've been robbed of money instead of no, we've we're prosperous and we've purchased a lot of things. So you know that we're made overseas that we're using that we're and, using. You know, right. uh, and uh, 
it's more of an appetite. It's not a intelligence of mm-hmm. something. It's a emotional reactions to things that drive him. So we have legitimate beefs with China, ch- trade beefs that need to be addressed. They steal our intellectual property. We've been they them. subsidize they subsidize the, their their exports to us. We have legitimate problems that need to be addressed. But the absolute wrong way to do it would be then pick a fight with all your allies on trade and like other Canada. things. Canada, Europe, the European Union, you know, to talk about the European Union being an adversary, you know, on the, on, a, on a level with Russia as he did yeah. re- recently. I mean, just r- r- ridiculous, absurd notions. So you, you end up having your allies making common cause with your real adversaries and resistance to, to the bull, you know, the United States bully, and you don't and get delivering what you want. Europe to Russia and de- yes. or or yeah, right. Southeast Asia to China. Right. The best way to take on China's uh, unfair trade practices really was with the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right. you know, which organized the rest of Asia into a, uh, a trade a, a coalition, a, a largely free trading coalition with the United States. Would have been a, a, a marvelous sort of bulwark against uh, against the Chinese. Chinese and Asia and, and, and kept the U.S. You know, uh, leaders of the Pacific Rim. He does everything wrong, you know, because it's nothing. He just, it doesn't, to him, China, France, same thing, you know, it's like the, there's no, they're all, they're, they're no, because yeah. he doesn't think, oh, we've got something in common with these countries. To him, we have nothing in common with these countries because they're not our country. You know, we, we don't have shared values of liberty, fraternity, equality. We don't, we don't share those values with France. You know, we, we're just, we have businesses here. They make products and services. He, he feels yeah, he we feels. don't have common. That's, right. That's what yeah. Trump feels. It doesn't matter to him that we have common values. He doesn't spend any time thinking about those values or caring yeah. about those values. It's just, you know, it's just an imbalance on a balance sheet that he sees. You know? Yeah. So sticking a little bit to foreign policy, you know, one of the things that I think, Mark, you do so well in the book is you tell – global stories by relating it to a person. And you do that in talking about the Arab Spring. So talk a little bit about what 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 started that, but also that feels like there were some policy errors and some collateral damage where it was a missed opportunity for yeah, us. I think it may have ended up the same way. It yeah, I was going to ask you that. It, it started off. It started off in Tunisia with a street peddler who was, you know, goods were confiscated, and he was in protest. He he set himself on fire, and that that's the individual story. Yeah. In Libya, when we made a decision to go in, when Gaddafi was threatening to raise Benghazi and slaughter everyone, the Obama administration made a decision with the backing of people like Senator McCain, Senator Lieberman, Senator Lindsey Graham, um, to go into Libya. Uh, but you know, and we used air assets, air power. Um, but then soon, sort of withdrew from that military part of the coalition and left it to some of our NATO allies to do it, and kind of disengaged from the post revolutionary period in Libya and it right. became factionalized and jihadis, uh, foreign jihadis, ISIS types sh- showed up in Libya and it all fell apart. In Egypt, which was the most important country, right? you know, um, in the Arab Spring, I don't know how much of that is on us. You know, we, in a timely enough fashion, made, made it clear Mubarak probably had to go, even though he was a longtime ally of the United States. And, uh, you know, when the new government came in, which was, you know, Muslim Brotherhood government, they, they did a lot of wrong things. You know, they weren't, uh, they weren't really governing in the spirit of democracy, I don't think. And, uh, um, 
we sort of winked at or didn't didn't uh, didn't vocally or stridently or didn't do all we could to oppose the military coup that right. eventually supplanted that the Morsi that go- regime the Morsi re- government. Um, so I guess yes, it, 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 to my mind, it might have all ended up that way anyway in Egypt. So I don't know mm-hmm. that what the Obama administration did or did not do there mattered all that much in Syria. Um, yeah, we let that happen. No, it's not our fault that uh, the Assad government is a, are murdering savages. But we left vacuums there that allowed the Iranians to come in. Hezbollah, which is a sort of a, a proxy army for Iran, yeah, and uh, and the Russians come in. I don't think the Russians would have come in if we had done a, if we we were there. Yeah, I think there. And I'm not saying we needed to send ground troops or anything, but the, the slaughter in Syria is so. Horrific. Monumental. So so beyond comprehension. The, uh, the displaced refugees that are roiling the politics of Europe. That all these yeah. things we could have addressed to some extent, mm. you know, by a, by a more forward-leaning policy, making it safe zone up in the north or something and protecting it, yeah. you know, no-fly zone for the Syrian regime or Russians or anybody else, and making that clear. We didn't. They dithered. Uh, they drew red lines over chemical weapons. Chemical weapons were used, and at the last moment, they decided not to not to enforce their red line. Uh, uh, that that sent a terrible message throughout throughout the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, so yes, I think in Syria, I think the Obama administration is culpable for for allowing a horrible situation that was going to be bad, probably under any circumstances, to become incomprehensibly awful. Yeah. And you know, Mark, a little bit, as I listen to you talk about this, it's a reminder that our global idealistic role, we sometimes don't appreciate what we've gone in and done because it's quiet, it's invisible, but then it is ultimately protective. Like you talk about the decision to not enforce that red line in Syria then has a direct thread to the immigration, which leads to the kind of nationalism that yeah, we're that's seeing. That's right. That's right. Um, certainly in Europe, you know, a lot, a lot in Germany, a lot of the neo whatever uh, Germany first crowd, you know, yeah. uh, is a reaction to a lot, you know, Middle Eastern refugees coming into Germany, and some quite a, quite a number of them Syrians, and her decision to take people that were you know dying in the Mediterranean yeah. and drowning in the Mediterranean and. Desperate to get and out of true yeah. refugees, true refugees, true refugees uh, who we've always welcomed or we've mostly always welcomed yeah. here in the United States, and now we don't um, because of this administration. And what you've had with the last two administrations is it? I don't want to compare the two. Well, I, I, I'll compare the two. But there were people based on decisions made by Obama administration officials. There are there much of the world began to doubt American leadership during the Obama administration. In a number of areas, Syria being one of them, yeah, um, which was uh, a reaction to Iraq. Yes, also, of course, you know, of it's course, this cycle of, stuff. Of course, uh, and Iraq's a fine example. You know, uh, they withdrew all our forces from Iraq. Now he campaigned on it. I understand that, but it was in our interest to leave a residual force there, and the Iraqi government would could have been persuaded. Yeah. And wanted, but they didn't want some something that Iraqi leaders would pay a price for politically in that country that wouldn't do any good. So it would have had to been five or ten thousand at least people. But you know, we've had thirty thousand troops in Korea for a long time. McCain would make this argument. We've left people behind as a stabilizing force. We yeah. still have troops in Germany, even though the Soviet Union collapsed twenty years ago. The world began to operate with an idea of what it's like to operate without 
vigorous U.S. Vig- leadership. Yeah, I, vigorous, vigorous feels like the right. Vigorous, not U- not a lack of leadership. No, not a lack of, but because in many ways Obama's idealistic vision yes. were oh, yeah. pervasive. Yes, and you know U.S. values mattered greatly to Obama. But the vigorous enforcement, vigorous of those, engagement of the United States yeah. in the world was less under Obama, and it started to give the world an idea of you know, well, maybe we can't rely. Mm. on them as much now we've gone we've proven that yeah we've proven you really can't (laughs) in the in the two years of the trump administration that you can't can only not rely on the united states but the united states are and i'm speaking from our allies perspective may be as much of an antagonist to us now that's trump and that's that that may be a few of the knuckleheads you know the steve bannon types and you know the uh who 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 have these you know and not the notions. career guy. No, and it's not. It wasn't McMaster, and it's not Pompeo, and it, it's not uh, certainly General Mattis. They're solid, They're reliable yeah. American internationalists. But uh, but the president of the United States is not. When Tucker Carlson could say something, you know, that he's he's smart enough to know better than to say that why why should my son fight for Montenegro? Crack a book on the Cold War. And ask yourself why so many American sons and daughters were prepared to fight for Luxembourg and what that managed to achieve. Yeah, for um, a very yeah. long time. But, you know, people on cable television, especially that particular station, and say that kind of stuff for effect or for ratings or for whatever. But uh, it's rather shocking when your interviewee is the president of the United States who says, you know, that's a good question. I, I've been asked myself that question and he can't answer it. Then we've got, then we got a problem. we got a problem. So talking about a loss of ideals talks about his congressional life and talks about his experiences with Senator Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts. And Ted Kennedy talks about this in his own memoir, that there was a kind of capacity to work across the aisle that seems to have, if not evaporated, become a lot more difficult. Why has that capacity to work across the aisle diminished or even disappeared? And, you know, the way it looks to me as just an outsider is that we've sort of supplanted country loyalty for party loyalty. I blame voters. Okay, and tell me, explain that. I'm not being facetious. Or we, flippant. We, we, no, it, maybe a little flippant, but... Um, we get the government we want or we have asked for. This government, whatever you dislike about it, is, is on us. Mm-hmm. Um, we, 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 we elected it. Uh, when you look at most polls, the, probably the biggest response is for you know, what, what, make, what upsets you most about Washington. They never get anything done. All they do is fight and they don't do anything for us. And yet you elect a guy that says, send me to Washington and I'll never, I'll never cooperate with any of those bastards. I'll take them all on. We've also siloed ourselves media-wise into uh, we have our own sources of information. So a conservative watches Fox, a liberal watches MSNBC. And Didn't I just read something the other day was that Giuliani said – Truth isn't truth. Truth, is, truth yeah. isn't truth. Yeah. I think um, – yeah, I, I don't remember yeah. the exact quote, but it was something like – well, Trump has his truth, and somebody else has their truth, right. and uh, yeah, there's yeah. no absolute truth. And trying to explain what a perjury trap is. I mean, so, I'm, I always laugh when he says that. We can't send the president into a perjury trap. Well, if he walks into a bank, has he stepped into an armed robbery trap? <laughs> you know, just Because they have yeah, money? Yeah, they, I mean, just, what, <laughs> just tell the truth. And his reaction was to that, well, there's, 
his truth and somebody else's truth. Yeah. So we siloed ourselves and through social media and, and cable television, and uh, we managed to not to block out any competing theories of the case and uh, and listen to only to communicate with only people who, who feel exactly as we feel. So some of it is how people get their information. Some of it's about gerrymandering. Why has the voters' expectations of their legislators changed? Or why is it that the legislators have been better at working with their constituents to educate them about the way in which politics has historically been done. Well, there's less, there's a, a sort of among members, I think a lack of humility, which I consider a, a core value of a conservative. Humility, genuine humility, where uh, to me is that you recognize um, you have as much dignity as any other human being, mm -hmm. but not one bit more than any other human right. being. And so we don't have, in, in a country of 325 million vociferous, opinionated cantankerous, argumentative people. Um, the idea in three branches of government, uh, rarely, even though we have a time of Republican majorities in both houses of Congress and a Republican in the White House, but often, uh, as often as not... And a majority of state houses. Yes. As often as not, though, uh, some branch of government or some some part of the governing structure of the United States is in the hands of a party different than, than, than the, the one that has the White House. Um, it's just not remotely feasible that you could govern as if this were a parliamentary government, yeah. you know, where you, you simply said, this is our, this is our prog our legislative program. It's done and we'll take it to the voters when, when, in the next election, you have to compromise and you can only make modest progress on your problems. But that for many generations and for much of the time, I, I started working on the Hill in the late 80s. Even then, it was a time where, you know, you did as much business. You just There were just certain things you had to get done. The appropriators got their bills done. The authorizers got their bills done. So they used to vote on budgets broken down? The way it's supposed to work in the Senate is the authorizing committee, say the Senate Armed Services Committee, would then authorize spending and for this program and that program and this program. And then the subcommittee on the Appropriations Committee for Defense would then appropriate those funds. There's always a little creative tension between authorizers and appropriators. We don't like appropriators legislating on their bills. Right, That's for us right. to do, you know. But uh, speaking as an, uh, somebody who worked for an authorizing committee chairman, um, you had to work together and you got that stuff done. Then in the sort of 90s wave, eventually that became uh, Denny Hastert when he was speaker. They had something called the Hastert Rule. Where if a majority of House Republicans didn't didn't want something, you wouldn't take it to the whole the full House, the whole House. You, know, you wouldn't For let a vote. Them, yeah. Let me give you the, the prime and, and topical example. We have passed. Uh, uh, we have attempted on this starting in the Senate three comprehensive immigration bills, uh, beginning in uh, 2005, I think, or right. 2006 was the first one. Then we did one in 2007, and then another one in I think 2013. Um, Two of those three attempts passed by overwhelming margins in the Senate, veto-proof margins. I mean, just um, including the last one. When a in a bipartisan person, way. In a bipartisan way. McCain was one of the leading authors of it. Right. Again, and all three of them. He was. He and Kennedy did the first two together. Yeah. And then uh, he. it was Schumer and others because Senator Kennedy had passed away. And it went to the House. Uh, John the, Boehner was speaker. Yeah, the first. Yeah. And he would not uh, – I, he saw the merits in it, I'm sure. 
Speaker Boehner did. So this is the big comprehensive bill that improved border security and had all sorts of stuff, you know, increasing the border patrol and, you know, uh, biometric cards and sanctions. And pathway to citizenship. But it had a pathway to citizenship because it's only realistic that you've got 11 million. You're not going to move 11 million, 11 million You're not going to get 11 million people to leave this country no matter how awful you right. make, make it for them, you know, because if they're going to face death threats and terrible violence or just inescapable poverty where they it's came not gonna from. Happen. Not going to happen. So it's just a practical, comprehensive solution to a problem that shouldn't be and isn't. It shouldn't be as big a problem to solve as, say, Medicare. Medicare is going to go bankrupt and fi- fixing it is going to be really hard. You know, right. This isn't. I got you. You know, and... Uh, so what happened in the House? Well, you know, because you've got guys over there that say, we got elected and we're going to do things 100% our way and we don't have to compromise at all. I'm speaking of yeah. Freedom Caucus types, Tea Party and the Tea Party wave elections, who just feel that they want 100% of their way all the time and won't agree to anything. And the leadership tolerates it. You can solve that problem because they, that they can probably prevent you from being elected to your leadership post if you've got any kind yeah. of competition. But the answer is to cooperate with Democrats as we would in the past to pass legislation we know will make modest progress on the problems of our time, which is all you can expect. It's three yards on a cloud of dust in this country. Don't be so arrogant to think you, yeah. can, you can do better than that. It's, it's, that's not possible. And that's the way things Except work. those incremental steps historically, like take from the 40s. We, we, we muddle through. We, we, we muddle through in this country. And, and it's worked. plenty. And as, as McCain said in his speech, and that in this republic is a magnificent achievement. Mm. Okay, we muddle through. And, and, and that, I think, is a very temperamentally conservative outlook on governing. So, Mark, how- McCain, McCain, who's accused of not being a conservative, has that people I consider radical bomb throwers in the House don't. So, consequently, we get nothing done. Well, stay tuned for the next episode of Just the Right Book. Mark and I um, had a great time talking, and we'll have part two of my conversation with Mark Salter, the co-author of The Restless Way. Hey, Just the Right Book listeners, this is Christina Torres, producer of Just the Right Book podcast, and I want to make sure you check out our sister podcast, Distraction with Dr. Ned Hallowell. It's a podcast all about helping people cope in our crazy, busy, ever-connected, 24-7 modern world using connection as a key ingredient. And it's hosted by New York Times bestselling author and leading authority in the field of ADHD, Dr. Ned Hallowell. It's free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And if you haven't listened yet, there are two seasons to catch up on. So you can binge listen in your car, at the gym, while you're cooking, or anywhere. And remember to stay tuned for a special part two of Roxanne's exclusive conversation with Mark Salter, Out Now. Mark shares his firsthand story of McCain's 2008 run for president, Plus, we hear Senator McCain himself read the last chapter of his memoir, The Restless Wave. We always love hearing your feedback, what you recommend, and what you're reading. Please continue to send us your notes, and you can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music 
was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>